0: when you inflate a balloon there comes a moment when it is just almost filled too much and it becomes very scary you feel like it's just going to burst in your face listening and not singing to that song feels like that to me that you're just, you just it feels like we're just worshiping God right up to the moment of almost just erupting um, but what a thing, as I was sitting there, I thought, man, I, I'm almost more aware of my desire to praise God when I can't let it out. Uh, and that is kind of a beautiful thing in its own way, a beautiful thing that I won't miss um, in the future, but that I kind of appreciate and respect in this season and in this, in this moment. You know, I've heard it said before about churches uh, people will talk about a church that they've visited or maybe used to attend or, uh, or, or whatever. You say, that church is just so clicky. It's just clickish. You know, lots of clicks in that church. They're all just kind of too many little groups all over the congregation. It makes it hard to get in. Uh, and, you know, if you heard that a church was too clicky, would you think positively or negatively about that congregation? Really, you probably would think negatively about it and certainly if a church was described by many visitors as being clicky uh, it's certainly bad if it means that outsiders who are coming into the congregation have a hard time becoming insiders and feeling welcome and feeling like they belong that that they're part of the body of jesus christ Uh, it's bad if good good relationships Because you're so invested in the people that you're close to and spending all of your time with that you think man this is these are my people if that leads you to have a stale or disinterested approach to evangelism and outreach well that's bad but if what people are saying when they say that your church is clicky is when they walk in they immediately see small and medium-sized groups of people ministries, Bible classes, and life groups uh, that are fully engaged in one another's lives. And and you walk in and you think, man, those people have strong, close, long-term relationships. Then maybe it's not all bad. Maybe it's not all bad. There's a local sports radio host that likes to say, uh, if a football team has three good quarterbacks, they really don't have any good quarterbacks. And when it comes to relationships, you could kind of make the same argument, right? That if you walk into a church where everybody seems to be equally connected to one another, then probably no one has really deep, meaningful, lifelong relationships. You can't have, uh, in spite of what Nathan probably thinks, you can't have over 100 best friends. You just can't. We're not socially and biologically programmed to be able to maintain that high level of relationships with that many people. Of course, there's some people in the world who who just are best friends with everyone and, and they kind of live in that way, in that exciting way. And I look at them and I'm like, boy, you wear me out just watching you talk to people. I need about two to three best friends two to three best friends, and allows me to be nurtured by those relationships and for me to pour into them without being drained myself. And last week, we talked about how Jesus uh, depended on friends, on Peter and James and John, and how Naomi learned to depend on Ruth and how that legacy came down to Jesus, and and about how Jesus did that uh, out of a need and out of awareness that it is valuable to have those kinds of relationships, that friendships matter even to the messiah's son of god but this week we're going to look at how these small and medium sized group this approach to having his peter and james and john but also his 12 apostles that, that holding these two groups together are more than just something jesus did out of personal preference or personal necessity these were core and essential parts of jesus's kingdom building strategy For his three years of ministry that while jesus was doing his ministry throughout the ancient world that he wanted to put so much focus on these 12 men these 12 apostles so that when he left he wouldn't leave a massive and humongous movement he didn't build an organization or or a group of churches that, that would take over the world he wanted these 12 to be the building blocks the foundation The New Testament describes the foundation of the church as with Jesus as the chief cornerstone and the prophets as the foundation, uh, that this becomes the group that Jesus is intending that his church and kingdom will be built on. In fact, it's so true that as you read through the Gospels, if you pay attention to how Jesus uh, includes with a special focus the 12 and excludes at times those who are not in the 12, you might wonder if there were times uh, that people looked at Jesus and his 12 apostles and went, huh, that guy, he's kind of a clickish Messiah. He's got insiders and he's got outsiders. He's got some people that get special focus and attention and some people that don't. Jesus intentionally behaves in this way. And he does so with an eye, not towards the the immediate needs of his ministry, but towards the long-term needs of the kingdom of God. And so when you see the calling of the twelve, and we don't get the call story of all twelve of the apostles, but you get a number of them. Uh, In John chapter 1, you hear the calling of John and Andrew. Uh, Very early on, they begin to follow Jesus. And then Andrew brought Peter. And then Philip and Nathanael were apparently next. And the Nathanael one's kind of interesting where, uh, where he kind of says, I don't know about you. And he says, no, but I saw you under the tree. And there's something about seeing Nathanael under a tree that makes him go, oh, you are the Messiah. Uh, someday I can't wait to ask Nathanael, what was going on under the tree? That Jesus, knowing about that private moment in your life, made you ready to drop everything in your life and follow him. But whatever it was, he's ready and he's following Jesus. After that, we see that James is apparently added a little bit later, it sounds like, in Mark chapter one. Matthew joins at Capernaum. Uh, The others uh, are believed largely to have come on board with Jesus's ministry in the first year. Maybe not all at the same time. A lot of times I think we kind of envision that one day Jesus woke up and went, well, it's time to go apostle shopping. He doesn't do that. In fact, at the time that he's calling the 12, we don't know yet that they're going to become apostles. That designation really comes a little bit later. At this point, he's just calling those who would be part of his group of uh, this company of people who are going to travel with him and learn from him and experience life with him and sit around the table and eat with him. And he's spending time with them every single day. And it's not just the 12. We know from Acts that later after Judas uh, commits suicide after betraying Jesus, that what we see is that when it's time to replace Judas, that the apostles say, we need a 12th apostle. We need to replace the one who is lost. Uh, And they come together and they come up with a criteria. And the criteria is essentially, we need someone who is with us from the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Someone who essentially received as much of Jesus' attention and time and was there for all of the stories that we were there for. And, And they narrow it down to two. And so there were two others, there were 14, that were essentially with Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry. So among those who were still with Jesus in the upper room after his resurrection, they choose Justice and Matthias. They cast lots, and Matthias is chosen as the new 12th apostle. You know, it's a ragtag group of followers, They're not well-educated. They're not likely well-spoken. They have all kinds of uh, impulse issues. They had not been to rabbinical school. They weren't from the wealthy aristocracy. It does not appear that they were people of great influence with anyone. Uh, a number of occasions, it becomes very clear that they are a group that was chosen in spite of their lack of qualification. And so if you're someone who has ever said, that you aren't qualified enough, educated enough, gifted enough to be a Christian leader, then you need to know that that lack of confidence in your own ability is exactly the kind of person that Jesus chose to be his apostles and disciples. You're who he wants. People that rely more on him than in their own ability, in their own ideas, their own training. You're the kind of person Jesus chose. Acts chapter 4 Uh, This is when the the apostles have really come fully and earnestly into their ministry. Uh, There's an occasion where the Jewish leaders were shocked at how well spoken these poor and uneducated Galileans were. How did these guys get to where they could speak like this? And someone says, they were with Jesus. That's the explanation. Their full training and education came from their years of traveling with Jesus in his ministry, with the focus that he gave them. In spite of the fact that most of them were raised in the poor area around Galilee, that only maybe one or two of them came from outside of the region of Galilee. that, uh, That they were the ones who were able to speak so eloquently that were the foundation of Christianity and the church. And these guys were impulsive. Temperamental. They were easily offended and they had all the prejudices of their environment. Jesus didn't go up to them at the beginning and say, Listen, I'm looking for a group of people that will eventually welcome Gentiles into the kingdom of God. How do you feel about Gentiles? They would have said, Terrible, not interested. He said, how do you feel about Romans? You guys are a, an oppressed minority under Roman rule, and I would like to eventually grow the kingdom to include Romans in it. How do you feel about that? They would have said, we don't like Romans. We don't want any part of that kind of inclusive community and inclusive kingdom. And yet he says uh, that he's not interested in perfect people. He recognizes that they are flawed from the beginning, and he's going to invest the amount of time that is required to get them to where they need to be. Which is good, because it means if God can use guys like that, then he can probably still use people like us. People that sometimes are easily offended or offensive to others, people who share the prejudices of their time, and yet Jesus can always go into people with problems, spend time with them, and love them through that, so that they end up coming out with more of the fruits of the Spirit than the fruits of the world. But if... God's going to use us to grow the kingdom, to change the world, to make disciples of all nations, which is the command that Jesus gives the apostles when he leaves them, if we're going to be the ones that he uses to do that, we're going to have to do it the same way Jesus did, one person at a time, one person at a time. Alton this year has has kind of made his motto for for his ministry and his group uh, that there's always room for one more. There's always room for one more. And that really becomes Jesus' approach to ministry, that, that he's growing it one person at a time. And his focus is not on the crowds and the masses. It's on the people sitting right in front of him in this and every moment. And so by sometime around Jesus' second year of ministry, the company of followers who is starting to gather around him and go where he goes and eat what he eats and and be part of everything that he is a part of has gotten so small that it becomes clear to him that he needs to distinguish this inner group, this group that is going to be the ones that he puts the most focus on. And so we have uh, in both Luke and Mark the telling of how Jesus called his disciples and then chose 12 out of them to be his apostles. Well, Jesus, that's kind of clickish, don't you think? To have insiders and, and those who are just on the outside of that. And, and to that, Jesus would say, my focus is on these 12, and on them I'm going to build the kingdom of God. It's about relationships and growing my ability to disciple these people, not with, with great speeches and rallies, but with letting them immerse themselves into my life as we go around the world doing this ministry together. And I can't do it with 100 people. I can't have 100 best friends. I need these 12 to be with me in a special way so that when I'm gone, they can carry out doing what I would do. That they don't have to guess what I would do if I was in this situation. They would know it because they watched me do it and did it with me. And even in spite of the fact that Jesus chooses the 12, there's still many others who are following Jesus, men and women who are part of his ministry and who are contributing to what he's doing and who are involved in in everything that's going on. Jesus sends out the 72. By the time we get to the, the resurrection, there's about 120 who are gathered in an upper room. Jesus, after his resurrection and prior to the ascension, appears to around 500 to let them know that he was in fact alive and well but 12 got extra attention. This is an effective way, this is a really valuable way to teach and educate these 12 men. If you think about how much you can learn from watching someone teach you something on TV. Um, my daughters uh, yesterday, I got a, they got me a little wood carving set for Father's Day that I don't have any idea how to use um, and haven't even opened yet. Um, they came up to me yesterday and they're like, Dad, we need you to, to carve. Uh, we need you, what do they want me to carve? Dollhouse furniture for us. And I said, I'm so far from knowing how to do that. And they said, That's okay, start learning today and you can make it for us in a few days. And their plan is for me to just watch videos on a screen and suddenly know how to be a wood carver. I don't even know the word for it, let alone how to do it. Um, and they said, It's fine, we'll be patient. Tomorrow's fine. Okay. You can't learn that kind of a skill from watching it on TV. Now, you can get a little bit better of an education if you can be like in a lecture hall where someone is in front of you and they're doing it in a way that's more, you can respond to them and they can engage with you. If you're in a smaller class, it's even better. But if you have an internship, this is where you can, as as a potter, you can sit down and you can teach the next person how to do what you know how to do. A sculptor can train the other person. A a business manager can really give you what they want. If you get to work with them and alongside them, and they get to give you responsibilities and feedback, that that level of discipleship, the smaller the group, the more effective the education and the training. And Jesus understands this and deeply integrates that reality into his ministry strategy of building the kingdom of God with these 12. 12. Jesus is so focused on this group that he often just dismisses the crowds. It would have been easy for Jesus uh, to, throughout his ministry to have times that he says, get this crowd bigger. The more of us there are, the more popular this movement's going to be. If we can get a huge crowd to just go to Jerusalem and get the army of Israel gathered, we can get to Rome, let's go storm Caesar's palace. He could have done it. The crowds were there, but every time the crowds got too big, Jesus would send them home, go home, return where you need to be. Jesus was fine with deserters. John chapter six, he gives a hard teaching about uh, eating his flesh and drinking his blood and some say this is a difficult teaching, how can we go on with this? And he says, you can leave, you can leave. And when many of them said, we're going to go home, and they start to leave, Jesus doesn't say, never mind, never mind, come back, come back, come back. Oh, let me explain it. I'll make this teaching easier. It's not actually as hard as it sounds. He, he looks at them as they walk away, and he says, that's okay. I've got my 12. In fact, he turns to the 12 and says, what about you? Are you going to leave? Peter says, where would we go? Because they're part of this group that is in the internship with Jesus, They're in it for life, and he's got to focus on them, and they get extra responsibility and access to him. There's times that Jesus places intentional barriers between potential disciples and followers. The rich young ruler says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And and you get the idea that he's kind of asking, do I need to be part of your movement? And Jesus says, just sell everything you own and give to the poor, and you can be part of what we're doing here. And he goes away sad. And Jesus doesn't stop him and say, wait, 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 a tithe is enough. Just, just come on. I just need more people. He doesn't do that. Legion, uh, or the man formerly known as Legion, who had all the demons cast out of him, says, I want to go with you and be your follower. And Jesus says, no, I want you to go back to the Decapolis, this region of ten cities where you came from, and tell them all that God has done for you. He says, No. You're not one of my followers. I've got my gang. I've got my group. I've got my ones that I'm focusing all my attention on. And so over and over again, we see Jesus dismissing those who aren't part of this laser intentional focus on being the building blocks for the kingdom. The small group and the medium sized group that travel with him that he's investing so much of his time and energy into. And it doesn't mean that he ignored the masses. He was constantly preaching and teaching to crowds. He healed massive crowds of sick. He fed thousands on several occasions. He cared for the needs of the masses. And he was good with crowds. There's on one occasion that the crowds tried to make him king by force. He, of course, rejected that. One follower of John the Baptist said that all men are clamoring for his attention. The Pharisees also admitted among themselves that the whole world has gone after him. The chief priests agreed with that assessment in their own private conversations, much to their dismay that Jesus was well-respected and liked by all. In fact, Jesus has to be arrested at night because they were afraid of his popularity in the city of Jerusalem during the really intense Passover time, when people were waiting for a Messiah They had to arrest this one in secret because of his popularity. He was good with crowds. And he could have given in to the temptation that Satan put before him in the wilderness, the temptation to have the entire, all the nations of the world bow down and kneeling at his feet. He could have given in to that. And that temptation comes through and echoes all throughout his ministry as he goes around places and people try and make him king. And Peter says, you can't be crucified. Don't you know who you are? And over and over again, he's tempted with this desire to rule in the traditional sense as a king who is making empires bow down in front of him. He could have done that. He could have been that kind of king. The entire earth would have knelt at his feet if he just demonstrated his full power and glory but he didn't repeatedly he showed that he was not seeking fame popularity power or favor with the crowds he repeatedly shunned the superficial interests of the clouds frustrated that they only wanted the miracles and the show and the free food and all the stuff that came with the Messiah and would chastise them and send them home he frequently told those he healed to not tell anyone to be silent, to keep his secret so that his popularity wouldn't grow out of a manageable place. He slipped away or dismissed crowds on a number of occasions so that he could get back to what he really wanted to be doing the most, teaching and discipling his apostles, his followers, those who his laser intentional focus was on, that they would be ready when he was gone. Truly, Jesus could have converted Hundreds of thousands if not millions. I, I, I don't know the population figures of the day But you tell me how many people Jesus couldn't convert convert if he un, Unleashed his power and the miracles and everything that he had at his disposal But instead at the end of his ministry, he's got a few hundred that are still there in Jerusalem Waiting and trying to figure out what to do now that he's been crucified hundreds not millions It's not to say that Jesus didn't want one more. Jesus didn't like that the crowds turned their backs on the lame man so that his friends had to lower him through the roof. Jesus didn't like uh, that, that the crowds would tell blind Bartimaeus, be quiet, leave the teacher, the rabbi, alone. Jesus didn't like when his apostles pushed away little children and said, leave him alone, he's got more important things to do than you. Jesus is inclusive in his ministry, but that doesn't mean that he's not laser focused on these small groups and medium groups that are traveling with him, that, that he always Wanted to build his kingdom out of relationships and committed followers. He didn't let the needs of the crowds and the masses get in the way of his intense focus on the relationships, meals, experiences, journeys, and conversations that he was having every single day with his apostles. It's deeply relational. The Jesus kingdom was always going to be built on connected followers and disciples. And it wasn't about mega rallies and great speeches or even perfect doctrine. It was about medium, small groups of spirit-led, Christ-following people of God. You know, this year, in 2020, the pandemic has largely reduced Christianity to a lot of faces speaking on screens, giving good sermons and good, good lessons. And in the situation we find ourselves in, there's something really good about that. And a lot of the teaching that's come out of that has been valuable and good uh, all over the place. It's also reduced Christianity to social media, which has largely been a dumpster fire. And so when you look at, at what, what has been happening, what is, there's this disconnecting of the fibers of the church into to an, a speaker and an audience And it's not the way Jesus built the church. And it's not the way Jesus intended to build his kingdom. And and as we as Christians move forward, we cannot become comfortable with Christianity being about a speaker and an audience. Jesus chose. And you think he couldn't have given the best sermons and the best shows and brought the biggest crowds? He could have done it. And he rejected that path. This year has forced Christianity into that path. But I'm telling you that as we move into the long-term reality of a COVID world for the next months or years or whatever is coming in the future, small group relationships of two or three sitting knee-to-knee in responsible and safe ways and places is the Jesus way of doing ministry. It's relational. And the beauty of it is it's pandemic-proof. Governments say, look, you need to be in groups smaller than 10. Jesus says, fine, that's what I wanted them to do in the first place. As the church, we need to, to live into Jesus' intentional ministry strategy of getting in smaller and smaller personal relationships with people so that when we all come back together, that someone might come in and go, boy, that church is always willing to accept one more, but they're just a little clicky." I want to get in one of those clicks. The cliques aren't back out they're welcoming in growing together growing smaller so that the kingdom grows bigger it's the jesus way it's always been about relationships mutually beneficial spiritual relationships that build the kingdom the jesus way one person one relationship one disciple at a time if you're here today and you're not part of the kingdom of God, and you need to be, and you know it, or if you have any other need, please come forward this morning as we stand and participate in worship.